0: Books and Gender Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and I'm here today with Jane Ward, Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of California, Riverside, to talk about her new book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, out last year, 2020, with New York University Press. Hello, Jane, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jana. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining me. How are you this morning? All well in Southern California?
1: All is well, you know. As long as there are no wildfires, we're very happy here.
0: Well, yeah. Well, it's not quite the season yet, right?
1: Well, it's um, in the eighties, so that's why we're thinking about it. Things are already pretty dry and warm. Oh,
0: that's that's a bummer. I'm can well, let's let's uh, fingers crossed this year. Um, yes. oof. That, it, that we don't need that right like we don't need that right now i know <laughs> talk of what we need is a break <laughs> yeah just need a really nice calm not too hot not like really nice summer
1: major no, no disasters please
0: yeah it seems like so little to ask no new pandemic just come on universe give us this oh. all right okay so let's talk about this book uh which i loved uh really good read And my first goal is to place the current work in kind of your intellectual constellation. So your first book, Respectably Queer, Diversity, Culture, and LGBT Activist Organizations, it's 2008 with Vanderbilt University Press, was followed by the quite famous and vaguely controversial, not gay, Sex Between Straight White Men, NYU Press 2015. Uh, But these books are just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. They're just your monographs. You have these loads of articles and they all kind of sit at the intersection of race, gender, and sexuality studies. And it seems like early on you had a focus on studying, an intellectual focus on activism in queer circles. And it seems like your later work has itself become activism in queer circles. Do you think that's a fair description?
1: I love that description. I don't know that I would have articulated it that way, but I love that. I mean, I I think part of how I would characterize the the change or maybe even the evolution in my writing mm-hmm. is that I was trained as a sociologist. And, um, so coming out of graduate school, uh, I still was very heavily disciplined by sociology mm-hmm. and, you know, sociology is all about organizations and movements and those sort of collective dynamics. And so I think, you know, that really informed my interest in queer organizations. And I was in LA at the time that I wrote that first book. And I was very interested in the corporatization of LGBT mm-hmm. organizations, projects that had started out as like really grassroots, really radical organizations. And that increasingly grew and grew and then had multi-million-dollar budgets and then had corporate sponsors. Mm-hmm. And so that book's really about the pitfalls of that problem. And so I looked at, you know, a pride organization and an HIV AIDS organization and then a uh, LGBT community center. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, I moved out of a sociology department and into a gender studies department. And it was like, I cannot tell you, it was like (laughs) leaving an abusive divorce. Oh, wow. Really new, hot, sexy love affair. (laughs) because i you know suddenly you know the universe expanded because it was interdisciplinary and people can speak in a gender studies department to whomever they want and they can develop their uh, an interdisciplinary voice and so i i kind of started to move in some maybe a little towards cultural studies and a little toward American studies. And, you know, of course, speaking to a gender studies audience, and it just really expanded things for me methodologically. And um, and I wanted to be in conversation with people in queer studies. And queer studies still is, I'd say, pretty anchored in the humanities mm-hmm. and cultural studies. And so- Sure. So anyway, I think, um, in, when I was writing, not gay, I was thinking about, you know, how can I shift toward answering these questions that I have with whatever intellectual and methodological tools are available to me. And so that's, you know, that's what happened there. I started to make some bolder claims in my writing.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and so one of the, this book looks at a lot of straight relationships, like hetero pairings, and subjects them to a lot of scrutiny. And one of the first things that you do is the sadly still essential work of making it clear that hetero isn't just the default of all humans, that something we understand instinctually, and consequently, like, that sexuality studies involves heterosexual studies, Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. But heterosexuality is, in fact, a sexual orientation. And we can subject that sexual orientation to the same critical and historical analysis that we would subject homosexuality or bisexuality.
0: Bold. I tell you. Bold work. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, how much did that have to do with your choice to do this book? Generally, actually, what I want to know is how did you come to write The Tragedy of Heterosexuality specifically?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm very interested in the emergent field of straightness studies, critical straightness studies. And really that's about picking up Foucault and others who um, pushed us to think about when the the categories of the, of heterosexual and homosexual first emerged. You know these are relatively new concepts. They emerge in the late 19th century. They're invented mostly by European physicians, and they start to circulate around the globe. And, but they really continue to circulate well into the or it takes until well into the 20th century for people to start understanding themselves this way that they have a sexual orientation, and so. You know, I I was super interested in how um, modern straightness, not just as a, a, a medical category, but as a cultural category, started to take hold, and how psychologists and sexologists started to understand, you know, what or 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 to name. What they believed was healthy heterosexual relationships. So that question, the the historical evolution of healthy straightness became was of interest to me. I was also really inspired by feminist studies of masculinity and critical race studies of whiteness, because these are two areas where, again, you know, we should Mm -hmm. flip. The critical gaze to 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 investigate what's often a totally unmarked, unexamined category of privilege. So all of that was kind of coming into the mix to to write this book.
0: Yeah, I can see. Yeah, and I see that uh, you can you can really see those areas at play. Um, So uh, my first question or my next question, pardon, is that I I want you. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to put on three different hats. Okay. So the first first, I want you to put on. I want you to pretend to be or like to embody, um, like the the popular heteronormative massive discourse we all live in. I don't know what that makes you. Are you a television? I'm not sure, but like okay. whatever, you know, get there. Well, okay, it's
1: gross. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I
0: believe that you're actually. Yeah, I think you're a cookbook. Okay. Um. So is it easier to be straight than gay?
1: From that perspective? Yes. Do you see where I'm going here? Absolutely. Thanks for playing along. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want me to say
0: more about that? From that yes. Please tell me. Why yeah. is it? What? What is the how? So yes, the answer here is yes. Maybe I'll stop trying to be cute. Um. Like <laughs> I
1: mean, we, Yeah. I mean, of course, we all know that if you're gay, that means that you're going to experience so much discrimination and you know probably family rejection and you'll be um maybe really lonely and it's gonna be harder to have children and you know um might experience um all sorts of mental health issues. We know that if you're gay you're more likely to commit suicide just generally a really hard and tragic life. And, um, and, uh, you know, it shouldn't be that way, but unfortunately is it is that way. So of course, if you could snap your fingers and be straight, you would in a heart. Right.
0: Absolutely. And then, but one of the central premises of this book is that you'd very, you'd answer differently while wearing a different hat. Right. Um, but if you were, uh, a gay white man, how might, what, what is the, what's the difference there? How, what might the, the response be there?
1: Yeah. So maybe you would say, actually, it's really fabulous to be gay. Um, and you know, you don't, uh, love is love. You don't have a choice in the matter about whether you You were born, we're all born gay. And because of that, you have to love and accept us like any other difference, like racial differences or any other difference. Um, And yes, you know, it's hard to be gay, but ultimately it gets better the longer you're out and the more you build a gay community and connect with other people who were born gay and we're all different. So we should just celebrate our diversity and love is love.
0: Oh, that's so, well, that's so, uh, cool, Yeah. All yeah. right. I'm going to make a sampler. Um, <laughs> so what's the do? Di- <laughs> and then tell me what's your, what would be your answer wearing the hat of a lesbian woman?
1: Yeah. Well, maybe I'm even going to change that hat because uh, I, okay. I mean like a radical dyke, a feminist. Okay. Right dyke, on. A queer dyke. Yeah. So this is my hat. I think <laughs> we finally come to my actual hat <laughs> and that, so, so what I would say and what I do say in the book is that neither of those discourses resonate for me at all and have not for a long time. I mean, I think the second one, the, the gay, the mainstream LGBT rights narrative is one that I picked up because, you know, in a way it's, it's sort of compulsory. If you're gay, mm-hmm. it's like you're supposed to tell that story. Um about how you know, you would be straight if you could, who would ever choose a life of homophobic discrimination, but you you were born that way, so you can't. And so therefore you charge along as best you can, you know, d- um, asserting your pride in yourself. But for me, that has never been the story. For me, the story is, I feel profound relief not to be straight. When I look at straight relationships, I think, um, oh my God, there's so much dysfunction, performativity, manipulation, um, uh, resignation, um, settling, uh, uh, abuse. I mean, just the list goes on. And whereas you know, in lesbian feminist spaces and, and queer dyke subculture, feminism really infuses uh, queer subculture. At least, mm-hmm. you know, the, the queer subculture I'm embedded in, and mm-hmm. so there's automatically, you know, kind of built in—not automatically, but built in as a critique of. All of those things that are dysfunctional, abusive about straight life, and so because of that, there's no sense that anyone would ever want to be straight. Of course, you wouldn't want to be straight. Be straight is a is a totally suffocating, um, dismal existence. <laughs> so, <laughs> that we pity to tell you the mm-hmm. truth. So, yeah. so what interesting to me was that this. Narrative, this experience, this experience of gratitude to not be straight, had been so silenced, like so drowned out by the mainstream lgBT rights narrative and and it just was like what's going on here that we can't tell this other story so what that's sort of one question in the book is like why are we telling this story about how tragic it is to be to be gay? When there's a whole other story about how tragic it is to be straight.
0: What? Where is that from? Like, especially from you know these are really happy, well-off cis white gay men who want to talk about um, uh, you know, well, of course I would be straight, but I was born this way. What? What's what? Where does that narrative come from? Yeah, I, mean, I know, I know where the dominant narrative comes from, but what's with that?
1: Well, I think it's two things. The first one is that I think the LGBT rights movement, the mainstream LGBT rights movement, made a decision that that narrative would be more uh, uh, politically strategic. Um, that straight people would respond better to that narrative. And so if you're just thinking strategically about getting wins with straight people, getting, you know, acceptance and assimilation, um, as you might be thinking if you're in with HRC or something like that, then um, that I think they really doubled down on that particular approach. But the second, the second element is precisely gendered, which is that gay white men, um, have much more to lose or they have things to lose in, um, in being gay, you know, that they're uh, very aware that heterosexual relationships, um, are, are set up for men, you know, they're structured for, for men's benefit, we know that men report much higher um, satisfaction in marriage and value much more they get much more value out of heterosexual marriage. Whereas for women, heterosexual women marriage is kind of a raw deal. It's mm-hmm. often a place of a lot of um on paid and unvalued or undervalued labor, emotional labor, material labor, childcare, housework, you know, all of that stuff. So men actually are losing certain kinds of benefits um, and resources when they're gay. That's just not the same for lesbian women. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that even when accounting for homophobia, lesbians gain, by virtue of being lesbians, they have more self-determination, they have better sex, they have, <laughs> they have more orgasms anyway if we want to call that better sex. Um, they have a more equal uh, division of labor in their relationships, they share parenting responsibilities more equally, they report higher satisfaction. so I, I think it makes sense that gay men have a different story because um, we you know sexuality sexuality doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's like these, all of these sexual identities, um, have unfolded in relationship to, to patriarchy. Um, you know, and not to mention white supremacy and that's a whole other story, but I I think those are the reasons why.
0: Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about straight culture as seen through a queer feminist lens or a radical dyke lens, as it were, what does straight culture feel like, look like?
1: Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that people, some people have reacted to, and I have gotten a tremendous amount of hate mail and pushback this yes, book, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. is they read the title and they think but you know, they're, they're thinking kind of, um, they're just thinking heterosexuality as an orientation of, you know, sexual attraction to, to people of the so-called opposite sex. This book isn't really about Attraction to the opposite sex. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. You know, Um, this isn't this isn't about problematizing that. It's really about straight culture, the culture that Mm -hmm. has developed around uh, attraction to the opposite sex. And I I would say the main, you know, you asked, what does it look and feel like? I, I think the most influential component um, or determining component has to do with the gender binary, which is that, um, in the 20th century physicians and sexologists and psychologists, uh, theorized that heterosexuality was inseparable from, um, from, from the union of two totally different kinds of humans, (laughs) you know, two not only different, but opposite types of people. With you know, and, and so you could think about like someone like John Gray with "Men are from Mars, Women are from B- Venus" as being kind of a, an exemplar of this way of thinking. That these are two people, you know, one who is um, by nature more aggressive, more stoic, not um, as emotional. Uh, who's naturally authoritative, designed by God to be in charge, you know, this kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, one who is nurturing, um, um, self-sacrificing, naturally suited toward parenting and other kinds of nurturing jobs. And so um, then this, because this clearly is unequal, right? Because we know that the broader culture values one of these ways of being over another. We know the broader culture values this sort of aggressive, um, public, competitive, emotionally suppressed figure more than the other figure because that way of being gets rewarded in the workplace. That's why men get paid more. There's an understanding that, you know, um, um, Competitive labor, for-profit labor, is deserving of a wage, whereas you know household labor, parenting labor, is an unpaid labor. So one of those is valued much more than the other. So how are you going to get women to sign on to this? Why would women ever buy into this this partnership with somebody who um, has? much more cultural value and has authority over you and is going to feel entitled to all of your emotional labor and material labor in the home. Well, what you do is you romanticize it. You tell women <clears throat> that this very arrangement is what's going to be, is what's, is what's not only, you know, magical, And, um, you know, this gets, this gets conveyed through all of those Disney movies marketed to girls, you know, not only is he going to sweep you up off your feet and protect you from the harshness of the world and everything's going to be beautiful. And this is going to be the source of your happiness, but it's also hot, you know, it gets eroticized as well that, Mm -hmm. um, male dominance, aggressive male sexuality is what women should want. Um, they should find men, you know, feminist men unattractive. So a whole culture builds through the 20th century around romanticizing and eroticizing gender inequality. The problem is that even as women buy into that, ultimately it's not sustainable. And this is why more women, you know, women are more likely to initiate divorce than men. Ultimately, women don't get nearly as much, as I mentioned before, out of heterosexual marriage as men do, and they experience a lot greater dissatisfaction. And it's related to all of these things, you know, precisely all of these things. This is why the self-help industry is so big and why women are the consumers of marital self-help books.
0: And that's, that's the, why it's the tragedy of heterosexuality and not the tragedy of being in a crap relationship, right? This misogyny paradox. Right.
1: right right yes yeah and since you mentioned that so that's a that's a term that i use quite a bit in the book to describe the way that you know men boys and men straight boys and men are understand are led to believe that if they're straight that means they're really into women they're sexually attracted to women they like women and yet that that attraction to women, that desire for women is formed in a cultural context in which the hate boys and men's hatred of women is utterly normalized. you know, we mm-hmm. see all the time in the media. And so there's a tension there, right? You can't um, like women and actually hate women. And so, although that is, you know, the tension that many men are living with and see this all the time I mean, the extreme examples, I talk about a lot of extreme examples in the book, but I try to lean more on the mundane examples because it's very easy, I think, for average straight men to feel like this has nothing to do with them. But really it does. Because if you love women as much as you say you do, or if you love your wife as much as you say you do, then you're actually going to not only care about whether she has as many orgasms as you do, or whether you've done your fair share of cleaning the house, or whether her job is valued as much as your job, which frankly, that really got exposed this year with COVID. That's so many men who consider themselves progressive, modern feminist men, when they were in a bind this year Um, with COVID because their children had to stay home and somebody in that marriage had to take the hit to take care of those kids. We saw a report after report coming out in the New York Times showing that it was women who were making that sacrifice, women with high-paying jobs, women with well-established careers, women who even made more money than their husbands. Mm -hmm. Still, men could not get their shit together to actually, you know, take the hit, right? So these are the kinds of mundane expressions of misogyny of of entitlement like, you know, ultimately when things get hard, men choose themselves over their partners. So I, I mean, this is a depressing thing, but mm-hmm. it also, I mean, I guess the the Another way to think about it is, is to just say, of course, you know, in the same way that we haven't been able to snap our fingers in the, this country and eliminate four centuries of white supremacy, we, we know we have a lot of work to do, and it's going to be multi-generational. We have been living with patriarchy and with men's <laughs> yeah, God, domin- you know, with men's of mm-hmm. women, men's entitlement to have that power over women for centuries. Mm-hmm. So, millennia. Like, yeah. Millennia, yeah. So of course, it's going to still be present in heterosexual relationships. And of course, men have a lot of work to do. Sure.
0: But we don't have to pretend to like it, which no. I think is right the other side. Right. No, right. we don't
1: have to pretend to like it. And that's what straight culture does. Straight culture says... um. Yeah, you know there are these, even if it—I mean—it rarely ever acknowledges them as inequalities. Instead, it chooses to see them as bioessentialist differences. That this is the way men and women are born differently. They have different brains. They have different bodies. So this is natural state of affairs, and therefore you accept it, you like it, and you um, deeply, deeply invest in it because you know, you, misery loves company, right? So you get really, you get really all worked up when queer people make different life choices.
0: So I want to take a second to talk about your source material. And in a couple of ways, the first thing is that you use a lot of really early, distinctly feminine, like distinctly lesbian theory, um, which has kind of fallen out of fashion a bit. And I loved it. Um, and it's, it was exactly right. These are, these women are talking about this, you know, but it's 1970 and they're talking about these things that you're talking about. Yeah. What was your decision here to go back to the, com- uh, yeah, to I, whomever, you know? Right. Yeah. The
1: Kawhi River Collective. Yeah, there we go. Florians, I'll do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, w- one reason was precisely that lesbian feminism has fallen out of fashion and, um, you know, we always have to, Keep our eye on that because there is a there is a way that that itself the um, the ongoing association of lesbians and lesbian subculture with uh, with that that is passe or outmoded I think is its own expression of internalized misogyny often in the queer community where we're more inclined to celebrate. Gay male subculture than we are to celebrate lesbian subculture. Often, we there are so many running jokes about lesbian subculture that it's you know it, that it's all about cats and candles and flowing curtains or I don't know that it gets sexualized and mm-hmm. the raw edge of you know the very um, sharp and insightful uh, critique that was available to us in lesbian feminist writing often gets dropped out and young people don't know about it. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also, I'm just, I wanted to say, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Yes. Lesbian feminists in the 1970s and 80s um, were wrong about some things or some of the things that they were arguing for seemed like they didn't really work out, like political lesbianism, for example. <laughs> and yet that doesn't mean everything they um, was wrong. In fact, they were spending a lot of time trying to um, develop solidarity with straight women because they saw the suffering that straight women were experiencing, and that's what I I, I wanted to mine that wisdom because um, it got really sidetracked with the AIDS epidemic and with uh, the with queer with queer theory, honestly, which decent mm-hmm. lesbian writing.
0: Yeah, which decentered the I mean it kind of it decenters the idea of a sexed body in some ways and um kind of doing away with anything that's specifically and until and so wholeheartedly um ab- embraces that idea. It became became a little passe and problematic. I think there are also some negative there's some things happening um that are kind of negative with lesbian feminists or not necessarily with, with a uh, you know, reactionary feminism that is getting that and the traditional feminist literature, the traditional lesbian feminist feminist literature is getting kind of linked to turfy stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when, when you said that about the sex body, I mean, I think in some ways, a lot of the early queer theory, um, I mean, I think there was an interest in the sexed body, but it, it's like, it was so gay male centric that mm-hmm. there was a body part that represented queerness. It was the anus. It certainly wasn't the vagina. There was a lot of interest in, you know, because the crisis of the moment was the AIDS epidemic and the, um, Mass, you know, the homophobic hysteria around anal sex and the association mm-hmm. of gay men with death and gay male sexuality with death and risk taking. There became a way that, you know, there was a way that um, gay male sex practices, primarily anal sex and primarily, you know, um, anal sex without with, uh, b- barebacking, basically, mm-hmm. public sexuality, all of this, you know, became the risky sexual practices that queer theories circulated around. And I understand that. I understand why that was. Um, Those were crisis points that we, I I think, felt a need to um, develop a a new narrative around. Uh, However, there's always a complexity because of sexism where, Mm -hmm. you know, the slippage between just ignoring lesbians because of sexism, and ignoring lesbianism, or ignoring lesbians because there's some, you know, crisis for gay men, it, it can become very blurry. Mm-hmm. So I think um, lesbian theorizing really dropped out, and a lot of lesbian writing at that time actually became about caretaking of gay men. And there was an expectation in the 1990s that the central role that lesbians played in the LGBT movement. Was taking care of dying gay men, so all of the writing and activism that lesbian feminists had been engaged in before then, um, like I said, got kind of sidelined. Mm-hmm. So in ways, this book is about returning, returning to that unfinished business. Mm-hmm.
0: And then you also use uh, like diff- different primary source kind of caches, um, and for your first the first chapter you spend a lot of time with these like relationship guides behavior guides conduct manuals we would call them you know from in the early modern era, era about how to how you live how to have a happy relationship how to have a happy marriage specifically yeah um, and th- there, these are places this was a place where there were you were pulling out information from these that was just unbelievable so okay, can you tell us about these things
1: sure I mean, there were so many, you know, I knew I wanted to look at the, you know, what were the first modern marriage advice books, which are obviously, you know, they're books about heterosexuality, because there was no, there was no gay marriage. So I wanted to look at these. And as I started the research, the first thing I was struck by was that um, the most prominent of these books were written by Eugenesis and often published by the eugenics publishing company. So they were books that were written by people who were deeply embedded in the logics of white supremacy. Um, so for folks who don't know the, the eugenics movement was all about encouraging the reproduction of people who were believed to be of good genetic stock and discouraging. So basically white people, white people, um, Particularly, middle class white people, people who were believed to be mm-hmm. um, intelligent, and then discouraging the reproduction of all other other groups. And so, many of these books were aimed at creating harmony in white marriages. And the earliest ones were um, animated by a deep concern on the part of the authors that. These marriages were not doing well, that they were in danger, primarily because they were filled with so much violence, um, with men regularly sexually assaulting their wives, and also just mutual loathing of men and women coming together in marriage. This is in the early 20th century. Um, you know, these are generally marriages of economic. Convenience or arrangements that um, are made often in Puritan communities, coming together and not liking each other at all. Women often feeling repulsed by the side of their husband's naked body. Um, the sex being uh, again violent and and often rape, um, and just a general state of misery. And the way, you know, the the. Authors of these books, and they were mostly like family doctors and sexologists, they were just so explicit and straightforward that 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 men and women hated each other. <laughs> and so they and and they were repulsed by each other. This is the language they used, and they were like, we need to really fix this because otherwise these marriages are not gonna last. And so they gave a set of recommendations to married couples. And at that time, the presumption was that men and women would read these books together, that they'd go to their family doctor and maybe Mm -hmm. say, you know, uh, maybe maybe the- the The woman in the marriage might tell her family doctor or imply that she had been raped by her husband. Maybe this would come up because she was feeling, you know, she was depressed or anxious. She'd probably get a diagnosis of hysteria. Who knows what's going would, would have happened then? But that then they would have been given. The couple would have be, get, would be given this book by their family doctor. And the book would give them a set of recommendations, which at that time were primarily about what people called social hygiene. You know, like you need to do things to make your body less repellent to your partner. And so perfumes and deodorants and, um, even dietary recommendations were made so that people, you know, um, had more attractive skin were, you know, had better breath, this kind of thing. So it was very interesting that the doctors were, and, and you can see this too is at the beginning of the rise of the beauty industry, which we didn't yet have in the U S in the, in that, in anything like how, how we have it now. And then by mid century, um, We have the discipline of psychology in full force. And so the marriage manuals start to shift from being about how repulsed men and women are by one another's bodies, and instead becomes about how repulsed they are by each other's personalities. And so the focus is really on what men and women, primarily what women can do to alter their personality, you know. To, be, to, to keep the marriage um, harmonious. And so that looks like things like make sure to be really beautiful and lovely when your husband comes home from work, make sure that the house is clean, make sure, you know, don't talk about your problems, kind of don't talk about anything because he just got home from work and he's exhausted and he can't be bothered by your the petty details of your life. And um, so, and then we move into the 90s with men are from Mars, women are from Venus and all of these, you know, Men who hate women and the women who love them, and he's just not that into you, and all of these books become kind of flashpoints in um, the in the self help industry. And really, since the nineteen nineties, with "Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus," the message hasn't changed much at mm-hmm. all. And that message is men and women don't naturally get along or have anything in common or like one another so they have to learn a set of tricks of the trade to figure out how to smooth over their fundamental differences if they want to make their marriages work
0: and so that that looks like what you know the advice that's on offer there is women take better care of your men
1: yeah, so women take better care of your men um but you know it's re- it's it's very specific so it tends to focus on um expressing an inordinate amount of gratitude for any little thing that your husband does. So what John Gray says is men or martians um, thrive on appreciation. They need to know that they're needed and that they're amazing. And so if they take out the trash, you should do a whole, you know, jump up and down with gratitude that they took out the trash. If they, because, because and then and then um, later on with uh, um, 21st century books like Act Like a Man, Think Like a Lady, we get, you know, the <laughs> we we basically are told men are on the verge of leaving you at any moment. So if you want your man to stay around, you got to treat him like a king. He needs to know that he's the man of the house. And so anything he does for you, you know, including just staying there, you know, continuing to be in relationship with you, you need to express tremendous gratitude. So this becomes the primary message to women. Don't expect much. And what you get, you better be grateful and let him know that. Men are told things like, um, so John Gray tells men, you know, I recognize that you actually don't want to listen to your wife speak, that anything she says is uninteresting to you, and maybe even the sound of her voice is grating. But what you need to do is recognize that women or Venusians. Thrive on connection and being heard, and so you need to you need to say things like, "Uh huh, oh, that sounds hard." I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. Uh, he also teaches, men, you know, women thrive on affection, so you should touch them ten times per day um, because you can't just ignore them and not touch them and then want to have sex at night. So if you want to have sex at night, make sure that you've touched them you know, in a non-sexual way throughout the day. So it's, again, it's just like, the, it's a playbook of strat- tactics and strategies that men and women can learn um, that, of course, don't do anything to address the root of the problem, yeah. <laughs> right? They, they don't address mm-hmm. the problem at all, but they sort of play act at, um, at getting along, making it, mm-hmm. you know, fake it till you make it.
0: And right on so and this reaffirmation of these really, I mean, maddening, nasty traditional gender roles is the is the, what is on offer here, and then your next chapter, um, it's not much different, which is your next chapter looks at the seduction industry, and this research sounds like complete and utter hell to me. Like I cannot imagine dealing with what doing this,
1: right? Um, well, you. Do it because I'm a lesbian. I think if I was <laughs> straight, it would have been too much.
0: I don't know, man. Anyway, um, so tell us about what you did. First of all, tell us what you did for this work, for this chapter.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the seduction industry is basically the industry that developed out of the pickup artist subculture. So you know, there was sort of there was a sub a culture of pickup artists. It was kind of an underground network of men who would teach other men. You know these these techniques for seducing hot women. And, um, as it became mainstreamed, it also started to have a pretty bad reputation for good reason. And so they kind of rebranded themselves into a more respectable industry, um, uh, which is, um, the seduction industry. They are dating and seduction coaches that you can hire, um, and their boot camps it's anywhere from 1500 to 3000 4000 for a weekend boot camp and they you know have drawn on all kinds of strategies to legitimize the work so they you know they say that they're drawing on dating science and popular psychology and even some feminist concepts to teach men how to be less creepy and more um, empathic with women to be able to better connect with women so that they can seduce them um, into bed.
0: Yikes. Yeah. So, and what's, what's, what are their suggestions? How would, how would a man go about getting a woman into bed?
1: Yeah. So I sat in, what I did was I, you know, did an ethnography of this world, um, over a couple of years, attending some of these boot camps, and then also just following all of their online material—you know, their webinars and videos and all of that. Um, so the early iteration um, involved a lot of techniques that the the seduction artists have since disavowed. So, you know, things that you may have heard of, like negging, where you you know, you sort of insult a woman at the bar um, uh, to assert dominance over her. And the belief was that, you know, that too many men approach women from a place of desperation, and that that's not attractive. So that if you actually deliver a subtle insult to a woman, like um, trying to think of what like you, you might say, is that your natural hair color or something that just sort of unsettles her, uh, that this then establishes that you're not desperate for her attention. And then she'll be responsive to that. There's so many, I mean, I could give you a million examples of all of these techniques that they used, um, to unsettle women and to gain power over women in a, in a, in a, you know, bar or like a pickup. Scene, a hookup scene. Um, but they have since, you know, part of the rebranding is moving away from those te- techniques and instead teaching men how to distinguish themselves from the legions of other creepy dudes by actually um, uh, teaching men how to bond with women and develop women's trust and sense of safety. So they do this by. Um, Suggesting that men, you know, they teach men how to stand, you know, what proximity to stand with women away from women um, so that they feel safe. They teach men um, how to put women at ease by um, making self-deprecating jokes, um, certain kinds of um, of really direct honesty, um, by, uh, developing a connection with the women's you know, so let's say you want to seduce a particular woman, you might pay more attention to her friends at first and get the buy-in of her friends. They call this, um, the AFOG, the alpha female of the group. So they, they recognize that women often travel in packs to clubs. And so, and they, they have the belief that often there's one woman in that group who's kind of the, uh, The protector of the group and so she might be a barrier she might cock block you so you need to actually establish a bond with her first and Mm. then seduce her friend um and then they have you know a million scripts this is what the game is you know different kinds of game you can run the this the industry is filled with lingo i mean you basically need a um uh an English to like bro (laughs) dictionary (laughs) Uh. world, you know? So anyway, before, before you run game, which is the series of lines that are, you know, intended to kind of move the conversation from something that's more, you know, friendly to something that's more sexual. um, Yeah. You do all of these things to, to, to display to the woman. that um you understand her position you understand that she's being approached by men all the time and you understand that other men are creepy and they some of the things are counterintuitive you know they'll they'll tell men like it's better for for a woman to perceive you as gay than for her to perceive you as a slimy douchebag you know and and mm-hmm. they don't you know because then later when you make it clear you're sexually interested in her Then that's very appealing to her that somehow um, this man that she didn't even think was heterosexual actually now, you know, is emerging as this very masculine, straight man who wants her kind of thing. Mm. All sorts of stuff that they suggest. They also suggest not bragging about how much money you have or your great car or whatever, um, because that's what all other men do. So instead, making um displaying that you're so confident that you can even make jokes about how how little money you have uh will put women at ease because it's counterintuitive. The whole thing is based on the presumption that women want an authentic connection, so you have to distinguish yourself from all the other plays that other men are using, and that those are so predictable that you can. Nearly guarantee that you'll get a woman's attention by trying a wholly different strategy. And, you know, they go out and practice. They do what they call infield. They practice <laughs> whether out in, you know, malls and bookstores. That's what they call day game. This is where you would s- try to seduce a woman in an average place like a grocery store or a bookstore or something like that during the day. And then they do, you know. There's, there's, um, in at night at bars and clubs, and you can pay many thousands of dollars um, to actually go traveling around the world with these seduction trainers, um, you know, to have an immersive experience of trying out your your new techniques, um, sure, with yeah.
0: women around the globe, right? But so they're training you how to pretend that you're ready to have an authentic relationship, how to, how to s- simulate authenticity.
1: Right. Right. And how to so, simulate humanization and respect. You know, that's basically right. what they're you know, saying. Women want, you want sex and she wants to be humanized. So you got to trade that. You give her the humanization she's craving and she'll give you the sex you want in return.
0: Which still, still we have this like, hunter prey, like yeah. passive active, like all of the gender binaries that we're used to, we're seeing here. Right. And and then again, let me say it one more time, this strong affirmation of your one of your central premises, that misogyny is the problem and the solution here. Right. 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 Okay. Um, and then your last chapter um, looks at... Um, the, the, the Queer Perspective, right? And it's uh, the title is A Sick and Boring Life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it's kind of uh, th- th- this, uh, this last little foray looking at what's happening. So just tell me what goes on in this chapter.
1: Yeah, so I want, you know, one of the things that I was aware that straight people don't often have access to is what queer people really think about them. And so I wanted to create a queer conversation, the kind of conversation that I'm part of all the time, which is where we're, you know, basically spilling the tea about straight people, you know, what we really think about them. And, um, and so I put out a call to my extended network and just said, you know, I, I basically asked two questions. One was, do you prefer the company of queer people over straight people? Why or why not? and um and then you know is there anything you find unsettling or uncomfortable about straight culture and if so you know tell me what it is and i asked those two questions because on the one hand they're so obvious you know we we talk about this among ourselves all the time as queer people um but on the other hand there's a kind of even to just ask them is is it can be, can be controversial, right? Because, um, straight people w- want to think, well, you know, that they can't all be, um, described, they can't all be lumped together. They can't all be tarred with the same brush, right? This is sort of how men respond to mm-hmm. critique about men, hashtag not all men. And so there's a similar reaction that straight people often have but you know, that I call hashtag not all straight people. So of course, not all straight people. There are straight people who are exceptions sure. to this, but, but we have a lot of complaints in the queer community <laughs> about what it's like to be at straight weddings, what it's like to be at straight parties, what it's like to be have all your coworkers be straight, what it's like to, you know, be with all of your heterosexual relatives. And it's, let me tell you, we're not sitting around thinking, oh, I wish mm-hmm. I should be just like that. So
0: that's the <laughs> if only the I were straight. And, exactly.
1: <laughs> so this chapter is just an honest accounting of all of the things that we find, you know, uh, um, it alienating mm-hmm. uh, to horrific about about straight life. It was
0: this was a place where some reading some of these quotes, I laughed out loud, um, and also <laughs> it was just like, oof. There's a lot of oofing. Um, It's the like something about. It's not even culture. It's what's left when you take away everything interesting. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the most common themes that I, I, I was not surprised, but somehow it hadn't. It makes sense, but somehow I hadn't anticipated. It was, you know, so many people said that they're the the worst part about street culture is how boring it is. It's just so predictable. And the feeling is that straight people follow a script. And so you can just, you know, you can predict what all of their rituals are going to be like. You can predict what their attachments and investments will be. You know, you've been to one baby shower, you've been to the mall kind of thing. Um, You worked in one office listening to straight women complain about their husbands. You've worked in the mall, but there's just so much scriptedness and queer life just has less of that because um so much of it i mean i think it's changing unfortunately but at least when i came out so much of what it meant to be a queer person was sort of uncharted right Mm -hmm. you know have um you didn't turn on the television and and have you know Countless queer relationships beamed at you in television dramas, you know, telling you what it's supposed to look like and feel like to be um, a straight man or a woman, and so, or, or certainly, I mean, when I first had sex, it was like I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I truly had no idea what I was doing, and that was the beauty of it, right? I mean, imagine having sex, a kind of sex that no one has ever told you, you know, what you're supposed to do, what it's supposed to look like, feel like. I mean, it's just, you know, so I think queer people actually love that about queerness. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I wrote about in my last book and not gay, how, um, how, you know what I fell in love with about queer subculture was precisely the unpredictability that I loved. You know because I came out at a time when there was a lot of a lot of people beginning to identify as trans, not yet as non-binary, but some people as genderqueer. You know, trans and gender. Mm-hmm. So I'd go to a bar, and I, you know, I'm really attracted to gender transgression is very hot to me. And part of what's so hot to me about it is precisely that I don't know. I, I can't easily read it. I can't box it in. I, I can look at a person and I don't know what their body looks like underneath. I don't know what body parts they have. And even if I did know what body parts they have, I don't know what sense they make of those body parts. And to me, all of that is so delicious, I can't even begin to mm-hmm. tell you, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for a person who's so attracted to that kind of, you know, the exhilaration of of difference and unpredictability. Straight life just is ugh, you know it's it's so disappointing. and so this was a big theme in in that chapter. Um,
0: there's also this theme about like uh, that I, something that I saw recurring about a lot. it just reflected um, the neat boxes, right that it's about consumption and consuming in the proper way. You buy these things and you have this house and then you have to talk about it and you've got this car and you have to talk about it. Um you know that a lot of reproductive like fitting in and reproductive ability is the ability to actually is about consumptive ability
1: right Yes Yes So
0: there's a lot yes. of that
1: Yeah um yeah I think in that chapter I talk about you know the um there have been various lesbian websites I think it was maybe Auto Straddle I can't remember that have Made lists of like the top 50 things we hate about straight culture, (laughs) stuff like that. And a lot of it is about basicness, you know. Mm -hmm. About live, love, laugh posters, and you know, aprons. Complaint about how much you love to drink wine, and mean okay. about how you hate your husband, or how men are like little boys or kids, or yeah, and loving watching Law and Order yet yeah, SVU like an endless stream of sexual assault dramas, and and it's very interesting. I think straight people don't know that these are straight things, right? Because mm-hmm. in no, the same, they're way- just things. They're just things, right? In the same way that white people often don't know all of the elements that come together to produce white culture until people of color point them out. Um, yeah, straight people don't know.
0: No, um, I thank you very much because I did not know about the Instagram account, Hats Explain Yourself. Yes. And uh, <laughs> that was that's a wonderful find, it's which awful. I immediately shared with everyone who, you know, I thought would possibly enjoy it, which is everyone. Yes. Um, Yeah. All right. So, um, we are we're like closing in on the end of time. So, uh, let me uh, let's let's a couple more things. So, the last part of this book acts as a bit of a coda. right, a little ray of hope. It can get better. Yes. Um, And so, what's your prescription? How does it get better?
1: What should we do? Well, the first thing is that I want straight men. So, speaking to straight men first, I want straight men who claim to like women. To actually show us the receipts that they really like women. So one of the things I suggest is that we need to tell straight men that their heterosexuality, their claims to being straight are from now on, from this point forward, going to be suspect unless they can show that they actually really are oriented towards women. And by that, I don't mean just that they like their wife or girlfriend. I mean that they care about women as a collective. They care about girls and women's well-being, about our freedom, about our self-determination, about justice for girls and women, because that's what it means to like women in lesbian feminist community. When you are lesbian and you desire women and you wanna fuck women, that is inseparable from caring about what happens to women. And somehow that relationship has been severed for straight men. It's like you can love one woman but not give a shit about what mm-hmm. happens to the rest of women. And so to me, that is illogical and it kind of speaks to the ongoing homosociality or homoeroticism of straight men's lives, which is that ultimately they care more about other men than they care about women. Their Mm -hmm. primary political attachments, intellectual attachments, um, even emotional attachments are Mm -hmm. often with other men rather than women. And so that's the first thing is I, I really urge men. I give a lot of suggestions based on um, the wisdom and insights of how, you know, How lesbians lust after women, desire women, fuck women, and still respect them and invest in them at the same time. Those things are possible. And I think straight men have a lot to learn from lesbians about how to do that. Um, I also suggest that straight women... Um, do some work on themselves to be more oriented, sexually oriented towards feminist men. Because one of the problems is that men often feel that there's a disincentive to care about women because women don't like men who care about women. If that is true, that's very sad. And women have some work to do on that. Um, I also think that it's very powerful for straight people to own their sexual orientation because a lot of what happens for feminist straight women is that they relate to their heterosexuality as a kind of sad imposition you know they're aware of the tragedy of their heterosexuality and they'll talk about how men are trash and how they wish they could be lesbians and blah 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 um, I cannot tell you how many straight women said to me if only I could be a lesbian but I want to suggest we actually don't want to hear that anymore <laughs> something passive and victimy about it. Because what that the feeling that 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 um, invokes in straight in in queer women is like, well, it's not that hard to be like If you actually yeah. are a lesbian, just do it already. You know, <laughs> it's not that hard. So there's something going on there for you. There is some attachment that you have to straight men that you need to own, mm-hmm. right?
0: Or to at least heteronormativity, and in hetero hetero society,
1: it's yeah, not to straight. Men. I mean, hopefully, hopefully the attachment is actually to men, to men's bodies, to men. You know, because when I ask feminist straight women, what are you actually attracted to about men? Um, what is it really? And many of them, when you when they're pushed on it, are like, well it's the size of their bodies it's the way they smell it's about their their body hair i mean things that make me kind of want to throw up but i get it like that's you know, that's what really does it for them they you know and those things are great those are just fleshy facts and there's nothing wrong with those the problem is men's personalities you <laughs> so can get men to be feminist men with hairy bodies, hairy, big body, or all those mm-hmm. things, big muscles, all those things that straight women are attracted to, then how delicious, right? You know? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. yeah. And well, and
0: that's the future we want. That's the future we have to create.
1: Right. Have, everyone can
0: have sexual and emotional satisfaction in their intimate relationships if that's what they want. Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. Yeah, what a great place for us to wrap it up. So one more question. Uh, What's next for you? What are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm working on two projects that are – Not so related to this, actually, which is a surprise, because I've been going hard on straightness for a while here. I mean, I guess one of them is a little bit related, which is that, you know, I live in L.A., uh, and I have a lot of contacts in the entertainment industry. And so one of the things that I had been observing was the impact of the Me Too movement on the entertainment industry, and specifically the way that sex scenes, that television sex Mm -hmm. scenes are filmed. So I've been doing a, a lot of research on that relationship because what has become clear after Weinstein and um, Time's Up and all of that is that many women have basically been coerced or sexually assaulted on set during the making of sex scenes. And um and we have a lot of work to do to make that a more ethical um, workplace. So I've been doing some work on that. And then the second thing is my um, colleague Shoma Chowdhury and I are putting together a book um, on witches and witchcraft, which is another <laughs> another love of mine. <laughs> it's about the. It's about. The global you know witchcraft persecutions mm-hmm. around the globe um, many people in the u s are not aware that women thousands upon thousands of women are are still being murdered um, in India and numerous countries in Africa because of their um, imagined associations with witchcraft. And at the same time in the United States, um, witchcraft has become incredibly trendy and many people are claiming it on social media and practicing it. So anyway, this book will be, it's an anthology. It'll be a global accounting of all the various meanings of witches and witchcraft, um, at this time. Oh, that's fascinating,
0: too. I'm excited about that work. That's really cool. When it it
1: comes out. Yeah, we will talk
0: about that. I would love it. And I will definitely read it. Um, So, yeah, Jane, thank you so much for meeting with me today. This has been great. I loved the book, and I loved our conversation. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Bye-bye.